I've got an author who lives in Australia. No, she's Australian. She lives in New York and she's writing about England. What about you? Well, I've got an in, uh, tongue-tied at the moment, Indigenous Australian poet. Uh, so about comfort food. So oh, that it sounds interesting. It sounds it? like it could be a very good time. So here we go. I interviewed Ellen Van Nierven. So here's my interview with Ellen. How many people find comfort in food? Well, for Indigenous poet Ellen Van Nierven, her collection of poetry is entitled Comfort Food. So, Ellen, welcome to 3CR. Hello, thank you. Now, your background, I think, might be a good place to start. Ellen Van Nierven is Dutch. My dad's Dutch. Um, he's from a small town in, in Milo, called, called Milo in the Netherlands, in the south. And my mum is a Mullanjali woman, um, which is our word for Bow Desert, so southeast Queensland, um, just south of Brisbane. Uh, mum and dad met um, in Europe, came back here. I have a, a brother, um, and we grew up in Brisbane, and knowing both our Aboriginal family and our Dutch family and, and speaking across languages at home. So A mixed background there. Yeah, I think it was... A, Does that give you a broader perspective, do you think? I hope so, but I, th I think it's definitely given me um, a broader perspective in terms of language, you know, really seeing the different ways of expression and, and really wanting to play with language, I think. Well, in some ways, that uh, leads us into uh, one of the poems I'm going to read, the first poem, which is entitled Whole Lot. And in some ways, you can hear the sort of echo of the way things are phrased yeah. And the sound yeah, yeah. of language is different. Yeah. So here it is. Family, earth, dingo, eagle, fire, food, whole lot. It's all of those things. What we eat comes from our roots. If we stop sharing, there will be nothing. We start with black. Let it get hold of you. Look at the stars. Or are you afraid to? The day shows country spread open. A map of all that was and will be. Don't forget it. I'm tracing it to remember. Don't be scared. We are not here until we sit here. We sit in silence and we are open. There are different kinds of time. I hope you'll understand. Sing it. I want this to be here when I leave again. I've been leaving a lot of times. It doesn't mean I want to. There is no easy way to cry. Tell them I'll be back soon. When I come back and sit here, I want to still see Mibun powering through the sky. Let me tell you, with my skin, under the earth we will find whole lot. It's all of those things. Speak to that. Well, that's the first poem in the collection, and it's really a bit of a prelude to kind of what you're going to get throughout the book. You know, it's really um, me speaking to where I'm from, where, what my roots are, and the idea that there's no separation. When we talk about food, we're talking about much more than and food, when we're talking about country, it's, it's the capacity is ourselves, you know, is everything. And really uh, serves there as a reminder to myself that everything does come from the land. There's another thing here in terms of uh, the choice of words you use, which have a particular significance to the Indigenous culture, like sing it, singing song lines yeah. and things like that. How would a white, middle-aged, European background male like myself uh, identify with that, do you think? Is there a barrier or not? I'm not sure. I think in the book there's, you know, this insider and outsider, you know, constantly brushing 
against each other. So, yeah, you know, an Indigenous reader might read it differently. I think there's enough there to follow, you know, and I think it's not only us that have that share those connections um, and those ideas around family and around land. And um, and so, yeah, through language, you know, it's in reading it in context, uh, perhaps some of those barriers can disappear um, through reading our expressions um, in this form. Mibun? Yeah, that's our, that's our eagle ancestor, ah. the wedgetail eagle. This is a good omen if you if you see one above your own country. Now, what's interesting is I take it you went to Canada at some yeah, stage, yeah. and here's this indigenous connection. Uh, there's a poem called Berries. She is of the Bear people, so she's first to the berries. It is when original people are acknowledged, the room breathes easier for me. A preoccupation with absence, finding the bears in buildings, universities, public gardens, those who belong to wilderness. Take off your socks, show your fur, and I'll show you my feathers. There's an affinity there between Indigenous cultures, it seems. I wrote this book, I was, I was lucky enough to go on a couple of cultural exchanges and that's when the urge to write this book really happened because through travel and through um, experiencing different cultures and different foods that I started to think you know think more broadly and also think more specifically about home and so I traveled to um, to North America and to India and that poem in particular um, even though I did travel to Canada I wrote that while I was in in the state in Austin Texas and um Met a woman there uh, who, yeah, identified, um, you know, that was the first thing that we said to each other, that she was from the Bear people. Uh, she was actually um, a cousin of one of my favourite um, writers of all time, Louise Erdrich, who's a Native American writer. And um, I was, you know, so pleased to have that association, just even though, you know, a cousin of Louise and, and to meet um, Loreen and... Yeah, there's just something that happens um, between that I've found between First Nations people of, of different countries. You know, we just somehow this is this common ground. I don't know. We we live and in opposite ends of the world, but or is it seeing the world in similar mm, ways? Or it, I think so. I think that might be right. I think um, even just the way that we introduced ourselves, which was a very Aboriginal way to introduce ourselves, and um, you know, just I what I found I craved whenever I went to a particular place was to meet someone who had some real intimate knowledge about the place and the locality and how, um, you know, the story of the river, the story, you know, the, the different stories of how the place came to be as it was now. And um, and that information, I found, was constantly shared between us. Right. Now, there's another one here which raises uh, other issues and concerns. It's called Brother. Mm. My brother's moon, he lives at night, his mind is in the shade of an endless technicolour. He wakes up a drone to the darkness, leaving his didge on the floor. I watched our uncle teach him in the sweat of an afternoon. Now the only rhythm that calls him is the buzz of the electrical, the technical, bluing, screen eclipses language and the lunge of thought. Mm. A breakdown in terms of culture. Is that what you're trying to get across here? There's several things in that. I think um, the way kind of young people go on different paths in terms of um, you know, in identifying or um, connecting with their culture or deciding who the, who the, what they want to present to the world. 
Um, there's also, you know, urban life, um, the idea that a lot of our young people are spending less time outdoors, experiencing things through screens. You know, technology, I'm really interested in it because um, in some ways there's a lot of benefits um, for, you know, cultural knowledge through technology. There's, you know, particular ways that we can utilise technology, um, whether it's through language revival or um, navigating country improving our lives through technology, but it's also a real block, it's a real disconnect, it's a real um, scary um, consuming force. Not just for Indigenous young people, I think it's for young people everywhere, because what do they connect with? You know, digital, it's ephemeral, it's not actual. Yeah, yeah. And so we haven't necessarily then got those cultural connections with something more concrete like the land that has yeah. meaning. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So it's it's a danger for all of us, but yeah. that's just me being a middle-aged ex-teacher <laughs> uh, complaining yeah. about the generation that, that's yeah. coming through. Well, yeah, definitely. Like, how is it affecting education? Is the learning, what are the learnings? How, yeah, that it's a very interesting question. But here's another question from an ex-English uh, teacher. Punctuation, <laughs> your style. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I talked yesterday. Um, got a question about uh, you know editing in terms of fiction, fiction versus poetry. Working with an editor, how it differed. And I know one thing was um, my poetry editor was very um, very gentle. Very um, you know, it's almost like she you know was knocking on the door, wanting to be let into the poem, and and she. Even just uh, every single comma, you know, is it okay if I maybe we'll take this out? You know, she was really, uh, it seems like punctuation is a big thing for poets and something not to step over. And uh, so we were wanting to, to keep it uh, really kind of um, flowing, you know, that, that that there wouldn't be many roadblocks. So there's, I think, in my perspective, there's not that much punctuation to kind of break it up it's kind of like a flowing kind of thing so how do we know what the flow is i've sort of got an answer in mind but uh how do we know how do you uh some of these lines sort of are complete in themselves some uh follow around but how would we know do you think yeah i'm from felicity i learned a lot about the line break you know and how that is really your biggest tool as a poet you know where you break the line you know Felicity described it to me as a plunge, you know, like every time you move to a next next line, there has to be a reason you're taking, it could be an emotional plunge, it could be a new direction. You, you're signalling to the reader that there's a change, um, there's there's something to kind of continue. And um, and so for me, that, that was the, the biggest decision that I that we made were, were around line breaks. Um, what, what was your kind of... Well, the, the rhythm of the mm. line, the, the line in itself has a cadence and sings, mm. and sometimes it just naturally will go through. So when you read it, there's a, a flow there, yeah. and, and you just follow it naturally, yeah. whereas some lines just end because that's what is meant to happen, even yeah. though there's no punctuation. Yeah. But I'm going to finish the interview with uh, one last poem called Surfboards, which is both in some ways a glorification, but tragic might be too hard a word, but here it goes. 
You can name six beaches where deeper riots started and haven't finished. Man's moral necessity, synthetic polymer surfboards with a human debt. When does a man cease to be a man standing up in the water, rising, standing, making contact? Contact, meaning death. Mm. Now, we've got the freedom of riding the wave, but there's Mm. an undercurrent, an undertow going on here. Yeah, I definitely have to acknowledge um, Uncle Vernon Aki, whose artwork, um, the six surfboards, inspired this poem. Um, I was asked to uh, respond to a a couple of works at the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane and write poems to them. And this was one of the the artworks that stood out to me, and and I chose to include it in this collection. So six surfboards uh, symbolising blood and really a critique of masculinity in Australian surfing culture because you know it's it's not something that um, a lot of Australians think about when they go to the beach but there are many beaches in particular Vernon was um, talking about beaches of northern New South Wales where uh, the, the, the scenes of um, horrendous violence massacres poisoning, uh, complete wiping out of families in these particular regions. So the idea of a beach being to to many Australians a place of open expression, really uh, kind of going under those kind of currents and and exposing some, you know, some of the other complexities of of our history. Yeah, I was, I didn't see that necessarily, that Indigenous aspect. I was thinking of the territorial Mm. sort of conflicts on the one hand, which is brutal, and yet it's contrasted to this freedom on the wave in some ways, yeah. but then man's nature on on the other, which uh, could lead to death. So it's it was fascinating. Ellen, a fascinating uh, discussion. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time <laughs> for. But the book is called Comfort Food by Ellen Van Nierven, and it's a University of Queensland press release. So, Ellen, thank you for coming in today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk. There you are, Jen. That was my interview with Ellen. Who have you got? Well, I have got our Crystal Thornell, and I thought it was interesting with Ellen. She sort of spoke about people going down the beach. Well, I'm going to take you to a different water element. Here we go. If you read about warm-toned carpets, clement weather and lucient jewellery, are you transposed to a different time and place? Crystal Thornall has taken us back to Harrogate, a spa town. Crystal, welcome to 3CR, and you better tell us just where and when you've written this book. Okay, well, Harrogate is in the north of England, in Yorkshire, and my novel is set in 1926, over a period of just 11 days in December of 1926. Now, Harrogate is a spa town. Mm. It's people convalescing or taking the waters. Mm. Now, what type of person would be doing this? Quite an affluent person. Uh, It was a very uh, upper middle class and also aristocratic thing to do, to go and take the waters and stay in such a place. It had been thought of as the queen of British watering places. It was very elegant and people would flock indeed uh, to Harrogate if they were if they were ill, if they'd perhaps, if they needed a rest cure, perhaps they'd had something like a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. 
uh, as, as a few of our characters yes, today have indeed. happened. It's about, as you say, people wanting to lounge and be coddled. Mm. Um, this is a, You've set it at a time when manners set your class. Mm. But in a place like this, things are more relaxed. Mm-hmm. But there are still those who you didn't want to socialise with. And this is a... Um, a quote from On the Blue Train by Crystal Thornall. Her droopy pistachio dress was covered with overexcited beadwork and her inquisitive expression rather dull. Now, who would want to mix with her? <laughs> Quite so. So, as we know, there's younger ones there for their nerves mm. and aged people for their health. Mm-hmm. And you've given us Mr and Mrs Jarman. Tell mm. us a bit about them. Mm. I don't quite know how they came to me. I invented them entirely, but I think I wanted the younger characters to have a relationship with with older characters who might perhaps have gone through something similar, some sort of distress earlier in their lives that was analogous to what the young people are going through now. So perhaps they had already passed through such a thing and come out the other side and survived. Well, not only (laughs) were these two quite happily married uh, together for many years, they quite liked the idea of being matchmakers. (laughs) And that was between Mr Henry McKenna, who is suffering insomnia and may have been there for his nerves, Mm -hmm. and Mrs Teresa Mm Neal, a sad-looking widow. So let's get the backstory of Henry. Now, where is Henry from and where did he meet his wife, Val- uh, Valeria? He is Australian. Mm. He has been living in London for some years already, but he feels as if he doesn't belong anywhere. His wife, Valeria, was Italian. She's died. And he's somewhat, he's an Australian perspective in, in the story and I really enjoyed having an Australia, an openly Australian perspective in the story. And perhaps indeed it's very Australian to be so disoriented about one's nationality or sense of cultural belonging. I think he's a little bit lost in that sense. He's a little bit lost too because he, he doesn't actually see himself in the same class mm. as a lot of these people. That's right. But um, then... Mm-mm. We're not going to say why he's so sad or mm. where he got his money from because you've got to read the book to write and find <laughs> that about. But there is an interest, a definite interest, mm-hmm. an affectionate interest that he shows towards Mrs. Teresa Neal. And she also remembers her time in Australia. Mm-hmm. Now, she was travelling there with her husband, uh, being dutiful and polite with his work colleagues. Mm-hmm. But then there was this isolation in a tropical rain shower in Queensland. (laughs) And uh, what happened then? Well, she... So this occurred in 1922. She's looking back on that time. Meeting an Australian in Harrogate reminds her of that earlier time when she found herself in that rainstorm in Queensland with another Australian. That episode, the earlier one, is somewhat inspired by something that happened to Agatha Christie in 1922. She went on what they called the Empire Tour, which took in Australia, and she stayed for some days with a family on a cattle station in Queensland. And there she became rather infatuated with an Australian 
a young Australian man, the son of uh-huh. this family. Uh, his name was Frick Bell. And she says in her autobiography, I, I really lost my heart to him. So he did make quite a deep impression. And I wanted to fictionalise that and to have her meeting with Harry, the Australian in Harrogate, remind her ah, of that time. <laughs> well, our uh, Teresa Neal remembers that with quite um, a nice thought. And, and, and now there's the possibility of an alliance with Henry. This is another quote. If you were to consider the mind as a train, you might say she had simply sat for a while in a different compartment to the Mm. one she normally occupied as a wife. Crystal Thornhill, you've given us a bit of a clue right now, <laughs> but who is this Teresa Neal? Uh, Teresa Neal was the name that Agatha Christie lived under for that period of 11 days when she went missing, so to speak. <laughs> she was calling herself Teresa Neal, staying at that hotel in Harrogate. The... So that's truth. Mm, yes, that's and right. <laughs> this, so... The fictionalised account is how you've read her autobiography and are just created. It's my, if you like, uh, reimagining or my creative interpretation of what might have happened during those days. However, I, in her autobiography, she jumps right over the episode. So mm. she doesn't, there are some tiny little oblique references to problems with her memory and to feeling rather traumatised by press attention. But she doesn't talk about the disappearance at all. And I've taken the facts as they appear in biographical treatments of the time and imagined around them, incorporated them into my fiction. But I particularly wanted to try to explore what it would have felt like to live under an assumed name, to be sort of escaping from her public identity and to have this chance to be someone else, to be anonymous. So... We've got to look back and we really get all of this feeling about her. Is What, she, what is she escaping from? And, the, and mm. the, the first big thing I thought was grief. Absolutely. She was very much in mourning. Her mother had died recently, just a few months before, and that had really hit her very, very hard. One of her biographers says that her mother was the love of her life. That was really a, a profound attachment. So to lose her was completely devastating. There was that. And then shortly after her mother's death, and in fact, this came up when she was going through her mother's possessions after her mother had died, her husband came down from London and announced that he'd fallen in love with another woman and he wanted a divorce. So everything seemed to be unravelling. She'd lost this person who was incredibly important to her and her marriage was coming apart. Another quote. I couldn't see for grief. I was blind with it, mucky, tacky. I positively stank of grief. That's how I failed him. (gasps) So the husband, the colonel, they really didn't have much in common, did they? They didn't at all, no. And that became more and more apparent over time, I think, as the romance evaporated. So he had golf. Mm. (laughs) And she was not a golfer, not a natural golfer. So we kind of work out why she might have thrown a teapot at Mm. him. Um, She continually postponed writing a letter to him, Mm -hmm. perhaps due to, you know, her 
isolation from mm -hmm. him as a writer. Mm -hmm. And you as a writer, and every writer I know, has had to put so much time mm -hmm. into writing. And Absolutely. You, you summed it up very nicely on page 232. Crystal Thornall, would you mind reading that, please? Of course. Well, you ask how I failed my husband. I didn't just neglect him after my mother died, but also before, by writing. To write you have to leave people alone, you see. Absent yourself. And even when you're in company again afterwards, you're different. No doubt quite unsatisfactory as a social creature. Mm, so she, she knew that writing could have caused some of the problems in the mm -hmm. marriage. But... Here she is, just coming into fame, you know, writing all her uh, detective novels. Mm -hmm. and she's really on the cusp, on the edge of that fame. Yeah, and she, well, she's got a lot of readers. You know, there's <laughs> there's books up for sale in Harrogate that she's written. Um, but she's got this problem. Uh, in fact, her pen had been thoroughly infected by the ugly inadequacy that had stilted her wretched book. <laughs> That's right. She was suffering from writer's block. She wasn't able to finish The Mystery of the Blue Train, which was the novel that she was trying to write for Collins at that time. And I think her writer's block was a really interesting reflection of her grief and her sense of being utterly lost in her life. She didn't have uh, everything. Everything was falling apart and therefore she could not write. Another quote, a wretched train wreck of a book. <laughs> and she f pitched the notebook where she was writing notes across the room. So it, it's really incredible to see that she, she knew so much, so much about other people that she could make such intriguing characters with her, within her own mm. fictions. Mm. But she was insecure within herself. Well, she was very, a very private person, I think, very inward as perhaps writers tend to be. So she lived in her head a lot. I think she's interesting. I think there are sort of paradoxical elements to her character. She was at this time hugely vulnerable and, as you say, very, very isolated and adrift. And, and somewhere perhaps even deeper in her, there was the self-confidence that pushed her to write, that mm -hmm. enabled her to be a writer. So I think she had had a lot of strength, a lot of resilience and a lot of vulnerability, both things. Well, this is, a, there was a subject that she and Henry spoke about and that was suicide. Mm -hmm. And she knew exactly, you know, sort of what to do and how to do it or mm -hmm. whether she'd walk into the ocean or poison with, or, or even knew about drugs for amnesia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course. So she worked in a dispensary best. during the war. She knew about poisons. That's right. And it was her business to think about ways of dying. <laughs> so here she is, away from it all. But the papers are there. And mm. uh, Henry, and well, if she wanted to, she could read about how the police had scarred a quarry and dredged a pond. Mm. And there were 2,000 people out searching for her. That's right. Some newspapers even said 5,000. So it was the most widely publicised manhunt of the day. It made a huge sort of noise in the media. It was extraordinary. <laughs> so, you know, Henry knew this, but was careful in the way that he um, spoke to mm -hmm. Theresa Neal, who was Agatha Christie, about it. He knew that that would have horrified her because she was so private. She'd never have wanted to cause all of that <laughs> circus. Her other talents... It, it, 
she didn't have the right temperament as the concert pianist mm-hmm. and not enough voice for opera mm-hmm. and much too proud to sing in a concert hall. <laughs> That's right. She had had the musical musical ambitions when she was younger and really studied very hard in Paris when she, she lived in Paris for a couple of years, sort of between about 15 and 17, and she thought that she might be a professional musician. And I think it was a blow to her not to, to realise that she didn't have sufficient voice for opera. She would have liked to been uh, a Wagner production. Mm. <laughs> Just as Henry McKenna would have liked to have been an author, mm-hmm. but he, um, he he only had his 12 pages. That's right. He, might, he may write more. <laughs> <laughs> he may. But he also, for the very first time, picked up one of the Agatha Christie books. Mm-hmm. So how about we finish with what how he reviewed Agatha Christie's writing? He'd begun to acquaint himself with her literary accomplishments. The tale he was reading was hardly serious literature. It wasn't the kind of thing he'd had the grandiose pretension as a young man to dream he might produce. But it didn't take itself for that. And it was clever. It ushered you in, as if into the reliably cheerful house of a spry, rascally great-aunt. Teresa had to have a nimble, astute mind and considerable strength of character. Well, not only did Teresa or Agatha Christie, but I think Crystal Thornhill has too, <laughs> because she's made this such a, a, um, a readable book. And I was right back there. I was back in 1926, <laughs> where they had a much better vocabulary than I think they did now. We How kind you are. <laughs> voluptuary and purblind and libidulously <laughs> and tenbrous and deraconated. Oh, this delicious the language for dead. me. <laughs> So I've been speaking with Crystal Thernhall on uh, about her book On the Blue Train and it's how she imagines what Agatha Christie did when she di- disappeared for 11 days in 1926. Thank you very much, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me. Jan, what were you telling me about Agatha Christie's name, the, the name she adopted? Oh, this was really interesting. This is sort of something we chatted about, that when she took on that pseudonym, it was the name of her husband's lover that, ah, oh, that he met at the golf course. Interesting, mm. getting into the mind of uh, her husband's yes. lover. Well, we, got it. We, we did a lot today, didn't we? we Poetry got... and oh, Agatha mystery, Christie. Mysteries. And I, next week... I've got crime. <laughs> well, next week I've got Di Morrissey. Oh, interesting. So, that'll be a good one too. Well... For all those listeners out there, we will uh, well tune in next week and uh, we'll have another chat. So fantastic! See you next week. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.